Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. And if you're viewing this on YouTube, you will see that we are back in studio. We had a few little technical glitches to work through, which is why we're getting going a little bit later than normal today. But hopefully you will bear with us and the content will be worth the wait. Great to be back here. Another sign that this pandemic that we've all endured is coming to an end and we are getting back to normalcy. It's funny. We started doing this podcast almost a year and a half ago now, and I haven't been in studio in over a year. So just to be back here, it, it feels good. It's it's going to sound better. It's going to give us more opportunities. We'll bring guests in. We, we've got some things planned that we were going to do from the beginning of the podcast, obviously, the Put a little bit of a hold on that. So a lot of stuff to get to today. Major League Baseball front and center. Some Josh Allen discussion. Some interesting comments made by a guy I really respect. We're going to talk about that. The NBA, NHL playoffs going on as well. And oh yeah, the Olympic trials are a topic. Yeah, I'll I'll explain as we go through. But I want to start in Major League Baseball. And the biggest story in MLB right now is about sticky stuff, and as weird as that may sound, pitchers are no longer allowed to use things like glue, essentially, (laughs) for uh, gripping the baseball. And it's, it's, it's been a process to get to this week. This is the first week where the umpires are actually checking pitchers for anything that may give them an advantage on the mound. And we've seen some things go awry. If you saw Max Scherzer and Joe Girardi get into it, it didn't go well. Sergio Romo of the A's basically dropped his drawers in protest over the him getting inspected. Last night, Angel Hernandez spent an awkward amount of time checking out Trevor Bauer's fingers for sticky stuff. Look, I understand why Major League Baseball is doing this. And I I heard Ron Darling is one of the analysts I respect the most. The more I listen to Ron Darling, the better I understand baseball. And he said something last night that I thought was really well said. Pitchers say they need the sticky stuff so that they can have control when they throw at max velocity. Because if you're throwing 102 miles an hour, you certainly don't want to drill somebody because you can't control the baseball. And Darling's point was, if you can't control the baseball throwing at max velocity, maybe you should dial it back to the point where you can control the baseball. Pitch, don't throw. And, and and I think that's part of the problem that baseball has gotten itself into, not because of the sticky stuff, but because of philosophy. The philosophy of pitching is throw as hard as you can for as long as you can, strike out as many as you can, and move forward. The hitting philosophy is hit it as far as you can. If you strike out, so be it. Move on. That has hurt the game of baseball. It has made the game a less watchable game than it used to be. You don't see hit and runs anymore. You don't see stolen bases the way we used to. It's a different philosophy. And I think because of that, the game has taken a step back. 
And I thought Darling's point about pitching, not throwing, was a very good one as well. There's also been a player now, Hector Santiago, was ejected from the game, and he will be suspended for 10 10 days. The funny part of that to me was they found sticky stuff in his glove. They bagged the glove like it was evidence. It was like CSI showed up. I was waiting for David Caruso to show up with his sunglasses on and check out the glove and, and tell Speed to run now. It was it was classic. Major League Baseball handling this the way they are aren't doing themselves any favor. I'm in favor of the removal of the sticky stuff. Let's get it back to talent. Let's get it back to where the guys who have the best stuff naturally are going to be the guys who have the most success and make the most money. It's funny that a couple of the big names who have been associated with this have interesting trends, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, in their statistics. Garrett Cole of the Yankees, who before last year signed that huge contract in the offseason, 10-year deal over $300 million. Cole is going to be the key to the Yankees' success or failure over the next few years. He simply is. If he's great, the Yankees have a chance to be really good. And I'm going to break down the Yankees' situation in a few minutes. Cole, since last week, 12 innings pitched, seven earned runs, still struck out 12, a strikeout per inning, but that's down from where he was prior to that. Since May 28th, when Major League Baseball basically announced this was coming, his ERA has gone up almost a run from 1.78 to 2.66. Now, that's still a great ERA, and it's still a very effective pitcher, Garrett Cole. However, he wasn't signed by the Yankees to this big contract because he was going to be pretty good. It was going to be great. Can he sustain greatness without the advantages that he was clearly getting from whatever he was using to get himself to that point. Trevor Bauer was the other guy. His spin rates have statistically reduced greatly. However, he still pitched pretty well the last week. Five earned runs in 12 innings pitched, 18 strikeouts in those 12 innings. His ERA has only gone up a little bit since May 31st, 2.24. He's up to 2.59. So these guys were essentially the face of what's wrong with cheating in baseball or how they were doing it. These guys have still maintained the ability to get guys out. And I think really good pitchers will do that. And I think even really good pitchers who are becoming better because of the use of illegal substances. Max Scherzer, who I mentioned, he and Girardi got into it. You look at what he did the last week, 11 innings pitch, two earned runs, 15 strikeouts. And since May 30th, his ERA has actually gone down. Now, Scherzer's going to be an interesting guy to watch because he's a free agent at the end of this year. He's also 34 years old. The question is, the Nationals, who have been playing great baseball, will they decide to move on from Scherzer 
or will they keep him and, and make a run this year to see what can happen? Overall, the sticky stuff, I think, gives an advantage not to the Garrett Coles and Trevor Powers because as much as they get an advantage, it's not a huge step. They're already going to be really good. They don't need help getting better. What it's going to do is take the marginal guy, give him a higher spin rate, and allow him to compete. It's very similar to what steroids did, both with pitchers and hitters. Pitchers, steroids took a guy who threw 94 and let him throw 97, a huge advantage. This is a similar thing. So I think Major League Baseball is doing the right thing. I'm not sure if they're going about it the right way, and I don't like changes in midseason. This should have been something from day one in spring training that was cracked down upon if it was that big a deal. But after the last couple years of home runs flying out, Major League Baseball decided that they had to do something about the ball to make it so it was less likely that a little slappy in middle infielder can go opposite field and stand at home plate and watch it. So they did reduce the ball a little bit, which has hurt the offense. You throw the sticky stuff, hurting the offense more. MLB had a problem. They're dealing with it midseason. Again, I don't like it. That it's midseason, I thought it should have been from day one, but I understand why it is. I also think that long-term, pitchers like Cole and Bauer are going to figure it out. They signed big contracts based on not just a couple, one or two years. They're, the body of work leading up to that allowed them to do it. But for Bauer specifically, there was a huge jump in performance in the last year and a half. So you wonder, can he maintain? I think he'll be able to. I think he's gotten to a point in his career where he'll be fine. Cole, again, going to be huge to the Yankees down the stretch. So we'll keep monitoring that. Those two names are going to be the two guys that most often are talked about as we go through. This past weekend, the Yankees lost three games to the Boston Red Sox. The Sox are now 6-0 and against the Yankees. Yankees come back last night and lose at the stadium to Shohei Otani and the Angels. Yankees are entering desperation mode as they look up at the Red Sox, the Rays, and even the Blue Jays are in that mix as well. The Yanks are fixable. I'm I'm convinced of this. They need more offense. They need better production out of a couple players. If you start to look around the Yankees roster and how to fix it, Gary Sanchez has had a bit of a rebirth. You're not going to be able to move him and get much better behind the plate anyway. You stay there. First base is an issue. Luke Voigt's back. He's healthy. Luke Voigt, I never thought, was a great player anyway. I know Yankee fans love him, and last year he did lead the major leagues in the shortened season in home runs. But I've never thought he was the answer at first base, and even more so with the injuries that he struggled with. DJ LeMay, who's been at first base a little bit, moving him out of his comfort level at second base, that very well may explain why DJ LeMayu's not having a very good year at the plate. I think the Yankees could improve at first base. That's an area of need. But the biggest area of need in the infield is shortstop. Glaber Torres 
who I was convinced was going to be a centerpiece of the Yankees for years to come, simply hasn't been that guy. He's a better second baseman than he is shortstop. And with all the shortstops available coming up, I think it's time for the Yankees to pull the trigger on a deal involving a shortstop. And they have the talent that they can move to get him. Include Glaber Torres in the deal. Clint Frazier still has some value. Miguel Andujar still has some value. They have talent down below. Davey Garcia is a pitcher who I'm not a believer in, but the Yankees, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Yankees could move him to help secure a guy. And, and the guy they should go get, in my opinion, is Trevor Story. The reason they should go get him, you know, you might say, well, he's a free agent at the end of the year, and he mm-hmm. absolutely is. Any player coming from Colorado has a stigma. He plays in Colorado. How good will he be outside of Colorado? That's why you make a trade for Trevor Story now if you're the Yankees. Bring him in, see what he has in Yankee Stadium for the second half of this year. And then you're in the driver's seat to go sign him. So you you get him out of Coors Field. You see what real numbers he's going to put up. You then have the ability either to sign him or go elsewhere because, again, there are a number of free agent shortstops available this offseason. The other thing the Yankees need is another outfielder. You're not going to move on from Giancarlo Stanton. Aaron Judge is a good player who's just not clutch. He just doesn't have that ability to be the clutch player. He's the face of the Yankee franchise, but he's not the best Yankee player It's just one of those things. You can live with Judge for now. You're probably not going to sign him to the big deal that he thinks he's going to get from them going forward. But I think at left field, you've got to go get somebody. Again, with Frazier going, you still have talent to spend for a left fielder. And frankly, in center field, I would advocate you bring up Estevan Florio. I know this kid has been a prospect who is kicked around a little bit, and because of injuries, it's maybe taken him longer. Bring him up, put him out there, see what you've got. How much worse can Estevan Florio be than Brett Gardner and or Clint Frazier at this point? I think the pitching the Yankees have, have used or have is more than good enough. And again, with last night, Michael King doing what he did and showing some consistency, David Garcia becomes expendable. And Garcia isn't a guy long-term that I think is going to be a big-time pitcher in the major leagues. Go get somebody if you think you need more pitching. But I'd spend, if I'm Brian Cashman, and, and frankly, if I'm Brian Cashman, I'm spending to save my job because there's a lot of talk that this may finally be the year that Brian Cashman is working for his job. There's also the fact that if you start looking at the Yankees going forward, is Aaron Boone going to be the guy? And that, frankly, Aaron Boone, he's fine. It's not an Aaron Boone problem. It's a talent problem. It's it's the way the team was assembled. And as long as the Steinbrenners, family, Hal, decides it's going to be something that he doesn't want to spend money and go over the luxury tax, 
I don't know what you can do, really, other than hope you get young talent that comes up and produces. But I just can't see the Yankees being content to spend the rest of this summer looking up at teams in their own division. Last night, Shohei Otani, he showed Yankee Stadium what he's about. And it's always weird to me. And the New York media always does this. Whenever a guy, a visiting player, comes into New York, and I don't care what sport, when LeBron would come to play the Knicks, when Zion played the Knicks this offseason, when somebody comes in to play against the Yankees and they do well, the New York media immediately should Shohei Otani be a Yankee. It's not going to happen. Don't even think that way. But that's the way the New York media thinks because they think they're entitled to getting every great player there is. Otani, what he's doing is ridiculous. And we are to the halfway point of the Major League Baseball season right now. You look at what he's done. He had his 26 home run last night. He's hitting 276, 60 RBIs, a 1.031 OPS. Right there, as a hitter, that's great numbers. You throw in the fact, <clears throat> as a starting pitcher, 3-1, and 2.58 ERA, 82 strikeouts in 59 and a third innings pitched. We just haven't seen anything like this ever since Ruth. And when Ruth was doing it, we weren't keeping track the way we are now. So this is breaking ground, in my opinion, in baseball. And there's always the next. There's going to be the next. I don't believe there's a next Otani. I really don't. I don't think there's going to be anybody coming along anytime soon who's going to try to both pitch and be a dominant big league hitter. This guy is doing something we haven't seen before. He's the story of baseball. Unfortunately for him, and for baseball, really, he's playing for the Angels, who have been playing without Mike Trout, who is the best player in baseball. It's a bad team. It's a boring team. And it's a team that, again, likely will miss the playoffs. And that's a bad combination. The Angels have been inept in spite of great talent, which seems almost like a misnomer. If you have great talent, you should be very good. They're not. It's really strange. But what Otani's doing is absolutely crazy. Another guy who has been doing crazy stuff is Kyle Schwarber. Every Cub fan has to hate what they're seeing out of this. Schwarber struggled last year in the shortened season big time. The Cubs decided not to tender him. Free agent. Nobody wanted him. By the way, many people said he would be perfect for Yankee Stadium with that short porch, the Little League porch, as I call it, in right field at Yankee Stadium. Schwarber this year is on a low-paying one-year contract with the Nationals. And he has brought the Nationals back to 500 and in contention in the National League East. He's doing stuff that Mech and Sammy did back in 98. He's got 15 home runs in June. 15 home runs in his last 17 games. In his last three games against my Mets, the guy's got seven home runs. 
He's been unbelievable. He's got 24 home runs, 52 RBIs. He's batting leadoff. He's never going to be a good outfielder. But what he's doing is changing the fortunes for the Washington Nationals. I think somebody's going to make a mistake and overpay for him in the offseason. I like Schwarber, and I'd like to have him on a low-paying contract. I would never give him a long-term deal, and I would never pay him big money. But that bat and the ability to go deep at any time is something that every team would love to have, and especially if he's in the American League where he could be a DH. So keep an eye on Kyle Schwarber going forward. Jacob deGrom, update time. This was funny. I didn't get to watch the game on Saturday night that he pitched, and I saw his stat line. Six innings pitch, two earned runs, three hits, five strikeouts. Thought to myself, what the heck's wrong with DeGrom? And then I realized that's the definition of true greatness. True greatness is when you have a good outing or a good season for others, and we wonder what's wrong with you. LeBron James, as much as I really don't like him all that much, has been Robbed of MVPs for having years that if other people had them, they'd be phenomenal. For him, they were subpar. You set your own level of greatness, and when you do that and you don't live up to that level, there's something wrong. You're not as good. That's the season that Jake DeGrom is having this year. It was the first start all year. He's allowed more than one earned run. He allowed two. His ERA went from .5 to .69. It's atrocious. I mean, will he even make the All-Star game? DeGrom is going to miss this weekend's Subway Series. And the Subway Series is something that both Met fans and Yankee fans used to look forward to big time. And as a Met fan, I now no longer look forward to it that much. Both teams have their flaws. Both teams have their own problems going into this weekend. And frankly, I just think interleague play is something that was a great idea that has run its course. It no longer interests me as much. I'm sure I'll watch and I'm sure I'll get excited. But I guess maybe it's just not the same because we've seen it so much before. I I think it's time... And who knows, with the next CBA, maybe they'll reduce the interleague schedule. I don't like the fact that the Mets play the Yankees as often as they play the teams in other divisions. I I think the unbalanced schedule hurts baseball. I think it's something that needs to be addressed. Hopefully it will. We'll see where it goes from here. Another sticky situation for Major League Baseball to work its way out of. On to the NFL, and Josh Allen got some praise this week from a guy who I respect the hell out of. Greg Cosell is one of my favorite listens. He wrote a great column this week, and if you get a chance to read it, he he subbed in for a vacationing Peter King, and Peter King writes a column every week for football, football in America, Football Morning in America, I believe it's called. Greg Cosell did that column, and he talked about how he got into film breakdown in the first place and how film breakdown has evolved in the media and how people you know, in the mid-'90s 
got a hold of the All-22 and started to learn to study tape and how he learned to study tape and who taught him how to study tape. Very interesting read if you get the time. But he, one of the things he wrote in that column was about Josh Allen. And he wrote that he thinks Josh Allen may be the most physically gifted quarterback in the history of the game. Think about that statement. All the quarterbacks who have played, Josh Allen could be the most physically gifted that the game has ever seen. When I think about that statement, I start thinking in the past. Who are the most physically gifted quarterbacks? And, you know, you immediately flash to guys like Michael Vick or maybe Lamar Jackson and their athleticism, how great it is. But neither ended up, well, Vick didn't end up becoming, and Lamar hasn't yet become a great pocket quarterback. And that's the entire package. To be physically gifted, you need to be a great athlete. You need to be able to run. You need to be able to throw on the move. You need to be able to throw from the pocket. And you need to be able to do all of those things exceedingly well. So while the greatest athletes, in my opinion, ever to play the position, Michael Vick and Lamar Jackson, I don't think they're in the conversation for the greatest quarterback of all time as far as physically gifted because of that lack of pocket presence. The guy I went to when I started thinking about this was John Elway. Elway had an absolute cannon for an arm. He also had the ability to run. He also had the ability to throw from the pocket. So I guess if you're looking at it this way, that Josh Allen is going to be compared to John Elway, that's a hell of a comparison. Who else would be in that conversation? I started thinking about the great quarterbacks of all time, and the best thrower of the ball I've ever seen is Dan Marino. The other best thrower, second best thrower, if you Dan Fouts. If you remember those Chargers teams, if you're old like me, what Fouts used to do was amazing. Marino was amazing throwing the football, but neither of them had the running component. Brett Favre could scramble a little bit, had a cannon for an arm, but I don't think you ever thought of Brett Favre as a great runner. Similarly, Aaron Rodgers. Roger Staubach, maybe. Roger Staubach was a very good runner and scrambler, could throw the football. I think he was in the conversation. Bradshaw was the pocket passer. Montana had the ability to throw on the move, but I never thought he was a great runner. Brady certainly never a runner. So when you start looking at great quarterbacks, the physically gifted part, to me, Josh Allen's biggest past comparison is John Elway. But where I think Greg Cosell missed the mark is there's another guy who right now is playing, and I think he's more physically gifted than Josh Allen, and that's Patrick Mahomes. Allen's had more success running than Mahomes. But Mahomes has a better ability, in my opinion, to stay alive in the pocket. And I think that's actually a greater skill to playing winning quarterback than running the football. Mahomes' arm 
is every bit what Josh Allen's is. And I would say his ability to improvise and throw off of different platforms, his arm is a greater strength than Josh Allen. I'm not saying he's got a stronger arm. The ability to throw is greater. I would say that Patrick Mahomes is more physically gifted than Josh Allen. But Allen's gifts are apparent. I I still remember watching Allen at his pro day when he was at Wyoming and watching the size component, the cannon for an arm, the ability to throw on the run, all of those things. I, I could see why people fall in love with him, and then you look at what he did last year. So the question now is, do those physical talents, does the success of last year, does that translate into a guy that we're talking about 20 years from now as one of the better quarterbacks ever to play the game? And I started thinking about that and it started looking ahead to this year. What do we expect from Josh Allen for this year? Do we expect more of the same? And frankly, I don't I don't expect Josh Allen to have as good a year this year as he did last year. And that doesn't mean I don't believe in Josh Allen long-term as a quarterback. The first component that's going to affect Josh this year that is going to be difficult to overcome is the fact that defensive coordinators in the NFL have spent all winter breaking down film, looking at Josh Allen's weaknesses, figuring out a way to get him to do the things he's not comfortable doing. Allen took a giant step last year. coordinators are going to figure out how he took advantage of them, and they now are going to try to adjust to that and make him do things maybe he's not as comfortable doing. So I think that's the first reason why I don't expect a repeat necessarily of last year. Secondly, and I think this is a big one, last year teams played in empty stadiums. Audibles were easy. You could take the clock right down to the end because you could look at the defense and you could interpret what the defense was going to do. An audible at the last second because you didn't have any crowd noise to overcome. That's not going to be the case this year. It's going to put more of an onus on the guy being able to read the defense early on. Peyton Manning was the best who ever did that. Can Josh Allen's film study and experience now allow him to be a guy who can get the team into the right set in a visiting stadium with the crowd going wild and get everyone on the same page and go forward. One of the big things last year that I've been really impressed with Josh Allen is his ability to do a hard count and get guys to jump offside. Again, in a loud stadium, is that going to be as effective? So there are a lot of reasons this year that I think that Allen's going to have a tough time backing up last year. Here's the other part. For the most part, the offensive personnel that the Bills have is going to be the same. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I wasn't impressed with the offensive line last year, but obviously overall, offensively, the Bills were really good. So if you start looking at it again going forward, You brought in Emmanuel Sanders. Maybe Zach Ertz is on the horizon. Maybe. I know that's been rumored for a long, long time. But is 
the same personnel good enough to duplicate the success of last year? We're going to find out. I, I certainly look at Allen, and I think he's one of the better quarterbacks going into this year. I also saw a thing that had Josh Allen ranked as the fourth best quarterback in the NFL right now. And if you look at the 2021 season, you put your top 10 list together, who is the top 10? Patrick Mahomes clearly number one in my opinion. I don't think there's a whole lot of question about that. Aaron Rodgers, if he decides to play, and who knows where he's going to decide to play, is number two. In my opinion, Russell Wilson, because of the lack of things around him in Seattle and the amount of pressure that Seattle puts on him, is the third best quarterback in the game. Until Tom Brady can't do it, Tom Brady's the top five quarterback. So he would be number four on my list. And here's where I put Josh Allen, number five. I fully expect him to have a year, maybe not as good as last year, but close. And if he does that, that's worthy of being the fifth best quarterback in the game. My sixth best quarterback in the game for this coming year, I think people will think I'm crazy. But I fully expect Matthew Stafford to have a huge year. Stafford's in a situation that he hasn't been in before. Now that he's with the Rams, he's got a great offensive mind on the sidelines. He's got a very good receiving core. I think Cam Akers is going to have a breakout year at running back for the Rams. Matthew Stafford, I think this year, is going to show people how good of a quarterback he's been and how much we've taken for granted what he's done in Detroit. Ryan Tannehill is in a great situation in Tennessee. I think he is the seventh best quarterback on the list. I'm sorry. I skipped Lamar Jackson. Lamar's seven. Tannehill's eight. Justin Herbert is nine. And I'd have him higher if he hadn't only done it for one year. Because Justin Herbert, what he did as a rookie last year, was ridiculous. Number 10 is Deshaun Watson. And, and here's where we get into the a little bit of an asterisk situation. Because Deshaun Watson is a quarterback who, in my opinion, could be much higher on this list. As a matter of fact, if we're just looking at Quarterback play, he's fourth on my list. However, is Deshaun Watson even going to play this year? What do we know about Deshaun Watson going into this year other than he's probably the biggest question mark in the NFL and it's got nothing to do with his ability on the field. It's got to do with his ability to not be a scumbag when getting a massage, apparently. I mean, when you have 20 different massage therapists, think about that. 20-some-odd different massage therapists. That's strange in itself. And 20-ish of them have accused you of inappropriate behavior. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's a lot of smoke, there's a lot of fire. I don't know what the NFL is going to do about Deshaun Watson. I don't know what the Texans are going to do about Deshaun Watson. Training camp's less than a month away. Do you expect Watson to be in Houston's training camp on the field? I think what the NFL will do is put him on the commissioner's exempt list until these 
things are either settled or go away or whatever the case may be. But Deshaun Watson's a great quarterback who right now has a career in limbo going forward. So, yes, Josh Allen has greatness in front of him. How attainable it's going to be, we're going to find out. Anyone can do it for one year. There have been a lot of one-year wonders. Can Josh Allen duplicate last year or at least come close to last year? And I think if he does, a year from now when we're having this conversation, it may be Allen Mahomes 1-2 as far as who the best quarterback in the league may be. Last night in the NBA was an interesting night. The, the Phoenix Suns had a chance to finish off their series against the Clippers. Tyron Lue, coach of the Clippers, is now 10-2 and two facing elimination. That's, that's an all-time great statistic. 10-2 and two facing elimination. The Clippers won, th- won a, last night in part, in large part, I should say, because playoff P, Paul George, had a great game. And I say playoff P this time, not mocking him. I've mocked Paul George giving himself the playoff P nickname for a long time. Because for a long time after he gave himself the playoff P nickname, first off, other than George Costanza giving himself the nickname T-Bone, who really gives himself a nickname? It just doesn't happen. But Paul George, playoff P, that happened. That's why I mocked him. And he didn't play well. But last night he played huge. 41-13 and 13 was really, really good. And the Clippers playing without Kawhi Leonard. I don't think we'll see Leonard again this year, regardless of how far they'll go. Leonard, I think, is going to get ACL surgery after the year. I just think they're not announcing it because they're hoping there's some way he could come back and play on that leg. I, I just don't expect it. But When you have guys like Patrick Beverly, Reggie Jackson, Terrence Mann playing the way they played last night and have played for the most part in this series, it's going to be tough for Phoenix to finish them off because last night the bench mob that I just mentioned, the second-tier guys, if you will, for the Clippers played better than the second-tier guys for the Suns. Cam Johnson, Campaign, Mikael Bridges, They weren't very good last night. You're going to get what you get from Chris Paul. You're going to get DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker. They're going to have their successes. It's the other guys. This is a game at a home where the Suns had a chance. And I got to be honest. Game six is is it. If the Suns don't win game six, I fully expect the Clippers to win game seven in Phoenix to get this done. The Suns were my pick to win the the NBA championship before the playoffs started. I love the makeup of this team. I love the Chris Paul impact of this game, this team. But since he's returned from the COVID protocol scare or whatever he was, if he had COVID, if he was close, whatever the case may be, he hasn't been the same guy. And to an extent, This team hasn't been the same because of Chris Paul. When Cameron Payne plays the point guard, the Suns get the ball up the court in a hurry and get good shots. When Paul walks it up, they don't often get as good a shot. Now, I'm not saying Chris Paul's not playing well. 
He just hasn't played as well as he did before he missed time. So we'll see where it goes from here. But this was a big, big opportunity that they squandered last night. And if you heard Monty Williams, the head coach of the Suns, after the game, said we didn't come out with desperation, and they did not. They fell behind 25-12 to 12 early, fought their way back, came out in the third quarter, took the lead after a really nice play at the end of the first half, a hook and ladder, if you will, and Booker hits a three. They come out, score early in the second half to take the lead, but the Clippers answered the bell. It was big time last night for the Clippers, and that game, six, in my opinion, is the biggest game in this series by far. If the Suns don't win it, they are done. So keep an eye on that. The other series, the Hawks are in big trouble. The Hawks had a chance the other night, and then Trey Young stepped on an official's foot, twisted his ankle. He is questionable for tonight, game four. Without Trey Young, the Hawks just simply don't have the offense. And the statistic that stands out to me through three games, Trey Young's only got 18 assists, and it's not because he's not making the right passes, the right decisions. It's because guys aren't hitting shots. Nobody is stepping forward for the Hawks the way Kevin Herter did in the last series against Philadelphia. They need John Collins, Herter, somebody to step forward and be that second player to take some of the heat off of Trey Young. As for the Bucks, what Chris Middleton did in game three in the fourth quarter was legendary. Middleton, who hasn't had a great series other than that game, was spectacular. Giannis has been great. Chris Middleton's been okay. Drew Holiday has been very good and playing great defense as well. So the Bucks are in a much better position, I think, to win this one. And I fully expect Bucks in six in this series. But the Hawks, hey, they've been counted out all playoff. They've responded. Let's see what they can do tonight. One other thing in the NBA that I got to comment on before I move on. It's Scottie Pippen. Yesterday, Scottie Pippen went on Dan Patrick's radio show and talked. First off, if you've heard the interview, nobody has ever gone more third person or better third person than Scottie Pippen did yesterday during this interview. Scottie Pippen kept referring to himself as Scottie Pippen and not only went third person going Scottie Pippen. He actually said Scottie Pippen was the MVP candidate. He should have gotten the ball. Scottie Pippen was going third person calling himself he. That's basically second person. That's brilliant. I mean, you not only go third person, you go second person? Scottie Pippen's playing chess. The rest of us are playing checkers. Carl can't go third person the way Scottie Pippen can. It's amazing. But what Scottie Pippen did was called Phil Jackson a racist in large part because Phil called the play to go to Tony Kukoc in the closing seconds of a playoff game against the Knicks. Famously, Pippen didn't go back in the game because he was pissed off that the play wasn't called for him. Pippen hit the shot. The Bulls won the game. Here we are, what, 25 years later, and Scottie Pippen is calling it a racial 
decision by Phil Jackson. Well, Dan Patrick, who's a great interviewer, pressed Pippen on that and said, basically, you're calling him a racist, and Pippen said he didn't have a problem with that. He said, I've been in the locker room. I, I, I just, Scotty Pippen's got a book coming out. He also went at Michael Jordan a little bit. I don't know why a guy like Pippen, who had a great run, clearly part of one of the great teams of all time, he was second fiddle to Michael Jordan, and that's no sin because, let's face it, Michael Jordan, if he isn't the greatest player of all time, he's one of the top three greatest players of all time. Yet, Scottie Pippen is clearly still envious of what Michael Jordan had. Pippen left, didn't win anything after, didn't get along well with Charles Barkley. Pippen's just a strange dude. And I don't know where this goes with him calling Phil Jackson a racist. If Phil Jackson even responds, I'd be surprised because I don't think he can win. I think what was put out by a lot of people yesterday was the fact that Pippen had two plays called for him prior to to the Tony Kukoc situation and didn't come through. So Pippen wasn't able to deliver. Then he didn't get get the play called for him, which makes Phil Jackson a racist. Scottie Pippen just very, very strangely in that interview. If you get a chance, check it out. It's available online. It's a strange listen, but I guarantee you this. Nobody's ever been better at third person than Scottie Pippen. It it never, not even Jimmy from Seinfeld, was better at third person than Scottie Pippen. Stanley Cup playoffs got underway last night, and it was really kind of a dud of a game. The Lightning beat the Canadians 5-1. I, for one, would like to see the Lightning win back-to-back Stanley Cups, in large part because... I don't want the Canadians to win because I find it funny that Canada's sport, I know it's really lacrosse, but they they have such a large following for hockey. They haven't won a cup since 93, and it drives them nuts. So because of that, I am looking to extend that streak and hopefully get to the point where the Lightning win two in a row. Final note. The U.S. Olympic trials have gone on this week, and while there have been a few noteworthy performances, record-breaking performances, what's seemingly gotten the press more so is the athletes who don't want the American flag anywhere near them or don't want to stand for the anthem or, or be part of the anthem ceremony. The Olympics, to me, have always been a nationalistic and Endeavor, And and this goes back to when I was a kid, Bruce Jenner, his decathlon winning gold medal winning in 76 was unbelievable. That same year, Sugar Ray Leonard was a phenomenal story in the Olympics as well. There were so many great performances that were part of the story as the Olympians would come through, whether it's. Mark Spitz way back when, or Michael Phelps, just 
the national pride. And there's no greater Olympic moment than the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Watching people celebrate and represent our country is kind of why the Olympics are such a success. Now we're in an age where being American isn't cool. Being American is something that people don't want. And frankly, if this is what the Olympics is going to be about, count me out. I'm not going to watch. It's just gotten to the point where cancel culture and being something shocking and saying something shocking is way more important than winning. I just don't have time for it. I, I, I don't have the energy to watch something, root for something, because I'm an American and they're Americans and we're all in this together. It's just not good. It's just not something that I find entertaining anymore. And I won't, I won't watch if it becomes every time an American wins the medal, we have a controversy about it. I, I just don't want to see that at all. It really, really will bother me. And I, I didn't like that this is what came out of the Olympic trials. And I know if that makes me something that people don't like, well, that's just the way I am. I love I love this country, and I think of the people who represent this country and how fortunate they are to represent this country and how fortunate we are to be represented by them. It's got to be a two-way street, and, and apparently in a lot of cases it won't be going to Tokyo. I, I think this Olympiad is going to be something that's not what I grew up watching and what I used to watch because of that. I'm already tuned out from it. Hopefully I'm wrong on that and I'll buy in. But the way these Olympic trials went and the things that were covered, it's not my thing. Well, that's all for this week. So glad to be back in studio. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week on the Falcon Around podcast. Thanks for listening.